I'm very pleased this morning to uh, introduce somebody you already know. That uh, he's been among us for I've forgotten how many years now, at least fourteen, fourteen years. So if you don't know this guy by now, then maybe you've been in another service. That could be, huh? But we're grateful to have uh, Chandra Malampali here with us today, and he's been teaching in encounters, uh, senior lunches, all different kinds of ways. He's involved with Free Methodist work in India. He's a professor. He's got a seminary degree, a great combination of all kinds of good things. And I'm going to shut up and let him talk because he's got a good word for you this morning. Welcome, Chandra. Yes, you're good. Good morning, everybody. Happy to be uh, sharing the word of God with you while Colleen is in Indiana. I have to admit that uh, I usually go to the third service. So um, good news is that the coffee is starting to kick in. So able to do this. Would you kindly open your Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and verses 16 to 25, and read along with me. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now I'm reading from the Revised Standard Version, which I know is different from the version that you have in your pews. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For, those, for these are opposed to each other, to prevent you from doing what you would. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now the works of the flesh are plain. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the, spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Would you join with me in prayer? Our God, we thank you so much for your word that gives us life. We thank you for the freedom that Christ died to give us. And we thank you for this letter of Paul to the churches of Galatia. Help us to enter the spirit of this letter and to take these words to heart to nourish our souls. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I'd like to introduce you to a new habit of mine. Call it a habit, call it a vice. Lo and behold, it's words with friends. I've got, uh, I grew up in a family that played Scrabble And when this went online, I found myself um, playing multiple games at the same time, including a game with Colleen. Oh, it's my turn. Okay, she just got a bingo. Um, I've got about four games going at the same time, but I know people that got 12 to 15 games going at the same time, and I think that's just a little bit overboard. Uh, But the good thing is, um, with words with friends, I don't get mad when I lose. I lose a game, and you just hit the rematch button. And you can just keep playing games over and over again. It's very happy, very collegial. They call it words with friends. 
I wish that were the case with everything. I grew up in a family that played racket sports, and for some reason, the sport of tennis has the capacity to get under my skin. I can lose a game in tennis, and I can mull over it for hours and hours. I can even wake up in the middle of the night and stew. And something about the male ego that is, that is immediately accessed in the world of sports, I suppose. And it gets into, it gets pretty ugly sometimes. You don't want to enter into the joy of your opponent when they beat you. You don't want to see them too happy. And um, you don't want to see them snarling at you. So why is it that two totally neutral activities can produce such totally different effects? I suppose it has something to do with the fact that my flesh has the capacity to get entangled with one activity, but it remains remarkably um, distant from another. And maybe that has something to do with what this text is drawing our attention to. Now, um, in Paul's uh, letter, in the passage for today, we are exposed to two totally different sets of qualities, two different MOs, the ways of the flesh and the ways of the spirit. And if you examine each of these characteristics carefully, it isn't difficult to see why Paul is urging us to embrace one set of qualities and one mindset and reject the other. It almost seems like a no-brainer. Love, joy, peace, patience, and self-control are certainly preferable to the long list of vices that you see described in verses 20 and 21. Matter of fact, that list of vices is so long that it takes about three verses to cover them all. But if this passage were all that we read, if we examined it apart from the rest of the letter, you might be tempted to misinterpret the passage as calling for nothing more than behavioral modification. Change your bad behaviors and replace them with good behaviors. Stop being um, impatient and jealous and envious and drunken and start being a loving, kind, and patient person. If that's what the passage were about, it really wouldn't be good news. It would just be another do list. It would be another uh, uh, form of behavior mod. It would be generic religion, uh, devoid of real power. But that's not what the passage is about. The passage is really about freedom. And Paul spends about four chapters developing this idea of building our life around God's promise, building our life around the affirmation of the gospel. And it's only after four chapters of of, of theological argumentation that he gets to these verses where he exhorts us to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh. A couple of weeks ago, Colleen preached um, a very powerful message on Galatians chapter 2, where she described Galatians not only as a very angry and confrontive letter, but also a theologically meaty letter. If you recall, Paul in Galatians is taking on the false teachings of the Judaizers. These were uh, men from Jerusalem who taught that, it, that um, in order to become Christian, Gentile converts had to observe Jewish ceremonial law. 
Specifically, they had to be circumcised. And when they became circumcised, they became committed to following all of the other laws. Uh, the Judaizers were trying to sell a particular package or cultural form for the gospel. And in the process, they were undercutting the message of salvation by faith. A lot was at stake in what they were teaching, so much so that Paul very stridently attacks the Judaizers as preaching a false gospel. You very rarely see language this confrontive in the New Testament, but that was what was at stake. But the good news is Paul turns this confrontation into a teachable moment. He expounds on the doctrine of being saved by faith alone. There's absolutely nothing we can do to merit our salvation. Paul goes into great detail to distinguish the life that flows from God's promise in Jesus Christ and the life that is lived in slavery to the law, to do's and don'ts. In chapters 2 and 3, he explains who the real children of Abraham are. The real children of Abraham are not the biological descendants of Abraham. The real children of Abraham are the people who put their trust in God's promise in sending his son to us to die on the cross for our sins. So all of us who put our trust in Jesus become children of Abraham. So it's only after several chapters of explaining all that God has done for us that Paul moves into the verses of today's lectionary. The passage at its core is about our freedom that comes from building our life around the promise. And it's by drawing upon this gift of God's spirit, which is God's presence in our lives, God's presence in the heart of the believer. It's drawing upon this gift, putting our trust in this promise that we bear the fruits of the spirit. We don't bear the fruits of the spirit by trying to crank them out and trying to produce them. We bear the fruits of the Spirit by casting our attention on Jesus and focusing on his faithfulness to us. To really appreciate the contrast Paul is drawing between the flesh and the Spirit, it's helpful to take a closer look at the language he uses in the New Testament. And now I don't want to get all pedantic and professor on you, but we are going to look at a little, little Greek and what... Um, is happening in um, the New Testament with this word that is translated as the flesh in some Bibles. In the NIV, it translates the word sarx or sarkos or sarka as the sinful nature. Now, I personally think that translating the, the word sarx as the sinful nature can be a little bit misleading because there are many instances in the New Testament where the flesh or sarkos is, refers to perfectly neutral worldly activity that's not sinful at all. Let me give you some examples. <clears throat> Sometimes the word sarx refers to the physical body or uh, the flesh, the physical flesh, or our physical existence. Paul talks about an ailment he had in his flesh or some sickness of the flesh. Sometimes the word sarx relates to... Uh, our descent or our lineage. We are born of, uh, Jesus was from the lineage of David. Um, we are born not, uh, of God, um, not of natural descent, not of a father's decision. Um, the Israelites were, were um, descendants according to the flesh in terms of their biological descent. 
Sometimes it relates to this notion of lineage. (coughs) Sometimes um, the word uh, sarkos relates simply to worldly matters. I made these decisions, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, based on worldly considerations. I checked the weather report. I checked ways to see if there was a lot of traffic. And then I decided to go to Jerusalem. (coughs) But I did not rely on the wisdom or revelation of God to make this decision. But these worldly matters and worldly considerations, are, there's nothing wrong with them. Sometimes Paul refers to the flesh when he talks about worldly wisdom, and he contrasts that with the wisdom of God. Sophia, uh, this notion of wisdom. So these are all examples of the fle- where the flesh is used in a totally neutral way, not relating to the sin list that you see in the passage. So when does the flesh become contrary to the ways of God? When it is paired with a verb. Boasting in the flesh. Placing your confidence in the flesh. Striving in the flesh. Walking according to the flesh. So this flesh refers not simply to the body, but to our whole worldly existence. Every activity under the sun that we can engage in can become an occasion for the spirit to lead us and guide us or the flesh. And according to Paul, the flesh brings a certain kind of element of control to all that we do. A certain kind of principle of control and clutching and gripping, control, uh, an obsession with outcomes. A life of of compulsivity and workaholism can be about the flesh. And I believe God really wants us to free us from all compulsivity. I think he wants us to walk in the spirit, in this gentle voice that lives inside of us, which is God making his home in our hearts. And I believe that Paul is talking about just that in this passage. What's interesting about Galatians is that it presents us with two starkly contrasting images of what life according to the flesh can look like. One of the images is the image of the Judaizer, the super-religious, legalistic, and self-righteous personality. What does that kind of person look like today? I do not have a specific answer or name. (laughs) largely because I have found this church over the years to be blessedly free of that kind of a profile. But I have, in earlier in my Christian walk, um, I've been a part of environments that um, have been quite different. Over the years, I've kept in touch with a number of friends who have shared a common story. And that common story is about belonging to Christian organizations or ministries that really tired them out. These were climates that promoted a kind of super-Christianity. They used language like thinking big for the Lord or selling out for Jesus, not being lukewarm, um, proving your commitment. Now, all of these phrases, these cliches, are, are, are meaningful when they're stated in the right context, but in these particular environments, it tended to produce a kind of pressure on us to, to, to appear the right way, to please certain people. 
to sound like you were super spiritual, to sound like you were truly committed and not lukewarm. And so when one of these super Christians would walk into the room, you felt like you had to talk Christianese around that person. And when they left, you just went back to being <laughs> your, normal, your normal self. It took my friends and me many years to recover from the wounding and fatigue <clears throat> that was manufactured in these super Christian circles. Many years to make it back to the gentle voice of the Spirit, the voice of grace, the voice of Jesus who says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You don't feel tough and uh, grandiose when you hear these words, but they are salve on the wound. So what about this other image of the flesh, the image of the self-indulgent, pagan, licentious person? Take a look at this. Ooh, I guess I should have put that earlier. Ooh, no. Okay. They're all out of sequence. That's all right. Um, he provides us with a long list of sins that include some sins relating specifically to the body, drunkenness, fornication, impurity. But a lot of the, list, the sins on the list that Paul gives us are sins of the mind and the heart, attitudes, mindsets, envy, uh, jealousy, dissension, uh, cantankerousness, party spirit. Um, and these um, are, are, are mindsets of the flesh that can afflict our lives in many different venues. It could be within the life of the church. And certainly Paul's letter to the Galatians was a letter to churches where he was saying, steer clear of this factionalism, this, this, this sniping, this envying of one another. <clears throat> but there's other venues where the flesh can get the best of us, including our jobs, our place of employment. Practically every different vocation has a potentially dark side and a potentially redeeming side. Our jobs certainly involve hard work, but are we approaching that work in the flesh or in the spirit? Are we entering a workday believing in God's faithfulness and promise to us to meet our deepest needs, including the need for self-respect and self-esteem? Or are we going about our work in our own strength and trying to extract from our, our jobs what only God can provide for us? Now, I can't speak to everybody's job and everybody's vocation, but I can use examples from the line of work that I'm in, namely academia. On the bright side, academia is about learning. It's about teaching and mentoring. It's about community, sharing of ideas, and enri being enriched by other people at every different level. We're providing real goods for people and helping them grow. It's a line of work where we teach people how to think about an issue and look at it from many different angles. And all of this is fine and good. But on the flip side, academia for both students and teachers can be a venue where we feel all kinds of pressure to be successful and visible in the eyes of other people. For students, that comes in the form of being obsessed with grades, being obsessed with uh, being caught up with popularity or your achievements and extra extracurricular. Um, I like to call it kudo-mongering, and it's something that um, professors get caught up in, too. Uh, it comes in the form of 
publish or perish, the longing for recognition, and I've seen it with people that are toward the end of their careers, the proverbial chip on the shoulder when you don't get the kudos that you believe that you were owed your whole, for after slogging away all these years. The proverbial chip on the shoulder. Marriages and families can fall apart from an unconstrained pursuit of these kudos. Depression and anxiety are rampant in academia. Look at the counseling centers of major universities and colleges around campus, just saturated with people dealing with chronic anxiety. The alternative is to change our motivation for doing what we do. One of the things that I really was blessed by over my recent sabbatical is learning more about the Jesuits. The Jesuits were a spiritual order founded by Ignatius of Loyola in the 16th century um, that was committed to preaching the gospel around the world. But they place a very strong emphasis on learning. Um, Research and writing was a part of the training of every Jesuit. And Jesuits were not afraid of the recognition that would come to them when they wrote and published things. But they did it for the glory of God. They did it for the majus, the the pursuit of the greater glory and the greater interests of God. And the legacy they left behind were some of the great universities that we hear about, Notre Dame, um, Loyola Marymount, and, and many others. Um, so these were, this is a very inspiring model of, of doing, engaging, and learning for um, something other than ourselves. Some time ago, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship did a study of why Christian faculty at research universities so often lose their faith. Why do they lose their faith? They go into their vocation with a real living faith in Christ, but they come out with no beliefs at all. You might think it has to do with the fact they're exposed to all of these worldly ideas. Um, But that's not what the study concluded. The reason why Christian faculty can so easily lose their faith is because they fail to observe basic Christian practices. Prayer, study of scripture, Christian fellowship. Stop doing these things. You stop having your confidence in the Lord reinforced through these basic Christian observances, you will lose, you will start to forget who you are and what your life is really about. So academia is the example that hits closest to home for me, but everyone's work becomes a battleground between the flesh and the spirit. What is walking in the power of the spirit mean in these other occupations, in these, these other venues? Another area where the flesh and the spirit are clearly in conflict is in the realm of our culture. We live in a society where there's enormous pressure to be visible and to be heard. This is reflected in the world of social media and in television programming. Blogging, Instagram, and Facebook are great ways of sharing ideas and staying in touch with a network of friends. I totally believe in that. I'm on Facebook. But sometimes I wonder if this whole venue also stems from a need for a certain kind of visibility, a visibility that we don't get in our interpersonal relationships. A number of times over the last couple of years, people have asked me to go online and like 
their article or like their posting. Go online and write some things in response to my article so that my article can get more hits and gain more traction and I will gain more visibility. I thought, wow, glad I'm useful in some way. Um, I've asked pe- had people ask me to write blurbs for their book on Amazon.com when I haven't even read their book. Felt a little bit like the flesh to me. All right. So one of my favorite shows is the show Chopped. It's a cooking show where contestants have to whip up something using a set of predetermined ingredients. And the creations of the, that they come up with are scrutinized by a panel of judges And the one who creates the worst dish gets eliminated or chopped. they got to go home. And then the viewer of this show gets to engage in this voyeuristic pleasure, looking at the person who got chopped in the face and watch the tears roll down their face and hear what they have to say. What on earth are they feeding on there? I watched one episode where a guy dropped some prosciutto on the, on the floor and picked it up and put it back on the plate, and he fed it to the judges. And the judges said, we saw you drop that prosciutto on the floor. And the guy would understandably, not surprisingly, he got chopped. What if we play with this notion of being chopped a little bit more? We can explain it. We, what if we extend it into different areas? The fear of being fired or unemployed, fear of being evicted, or going into foreclosure. These are very traumatic experiences and are very concrete experiences that create understandable anxiety. But there's a more subtle fear that people have, and it's the fear of invisibility, of just not being on anybody's radar, not being on the radar of the world that's out there. Fear of invisibility. So much of our efforts and anxieties in the flesh are devoted to this project of not being chopped, uh, being visible and important. There's a theologian named Paul Tillich who called this the fear of non-being. But in the New Testament, it's just the fear of death. In Hebrews 2... 15, Paul writes that Christ became one of us and died on the cross to, quote, deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. It's a real profound diagnosis of the human condition, this profound fear of non-being, the fear of not living eternally. In other instances, Paul uses another word to describe this, this endless striving for visibility. He calls it futility. It's just hopeless. You're just constantly kicking up this noise to be heard when God has heard us. God has affirmed us and given us his promises. So if we believe in God's promise, will he make us successful and visible? Will we reach the finals of American Idol or The Voice? Maybe not. But the image that we have in the Bible over and over again is the image of bearing fruit. This is what God promises us. The vision of the gospel is definitely committed to a kind of productivity in our lives. We are going to be productive if we trust in Christ. We will bear fruit. And it will be better 
than what we would do if we lived according to the flesh. A lot of times, we're duped into believing, if I don't do things according to the flesh, I'm going to be a loser. I'm not going to be able to keep up. That is such a lie. If you are called to a particular line of work, doing things God's way, it's going to take you so much farther than kicking and clawing and dissension and jealousy and envy will ever get us. And that's something we have to remind ourselves over and over again. The gospel is concerned with a kind of worldly productivity, but it's productivity toward a different horizon, toward God's purposes, not the agenda of our flesh. To wrap it up, I believe the text that we've examined today challenges us to ask a few basic questions, questions to ponder during our quiet times with the Lord. Are we going about things in the flesh or the spirit? Are we beginning each day with an awareness of God's faithfulness to us? What maneuvers of the heart is the spirit prompting us to make? What shifts in the heart? The image that comes to my mind are the adjustments of a chiropractor or the adjustments of a, an orthodontist. The little adjustments that God wants to make in our heart so that we are aligned with his purposes and his spirit and what the spirit wants to do deep inside. What are the acts of letting go of the clenched fist, of relaxing our own agenda so that God can take us to new places and allow us to grow in new ways? Finally, Paul's letter to the Galatians is a letter that speaks to our life in the body of Christ. As the church, we are called to be an alternative society that bears witness to the power of God. We're not supposed to mirror the divisiveness of our culture. At a time when our culture is so polarized by its media, the cutthroat politics of this current election season, the weighty issues related to mass killings and Brexit and every other contemporary issue, how do we engage our culture in spirit-led ways? Galatians calls us to relate to each other in ways that are uplifting, kind, patient, and respectful, and to serve one another in a spirit of humility. This is the humility that comes from knowing that we have been saved by faith and not by works. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that brings life. We thank you for the gift of your spirit who dwells among us and within us and the promptings of the spirit. And we pray that each day we would become more attuned to that voice and less tuned in to the world and its false security. We pray that we would not live with this fear of being chopped, but would put our trust in your promises. We pray all these things. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, amen.